Attention listeners, do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10x10 Horror Watch List, featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch List for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horror guide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horror guide. Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. As always, each episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show explores how today's horror filmmakers are getting their movies made while deconstructing their methods and career strategies into practical insights that you can use on your own horror filmmaking journey. This includes creative processes, funding resources, favorite books and tools, key life lessons, and much, much more. Today we have a very, very special guest, somebody who I've wanted to have on the show since I first started the show a few years ago. That is the legendary Eli Roth. We basically focused the conversation on Thanksgiving, his latest movie, which I highly recommend you go see. In any case, I figured I would give everybody a brief overview of the life and career of Eli Roth before getting to the interview. Eli Roth was born in Newton, Massachusetts. His father was a psychologist and his mother was an artist. He grew up on 80s horror and even had a horror-themed bar mitzvah where he got sawed in half. He went on to attend the NYU Tisch Film School and he made what he called a Tarantino ripoff, a short called Restaurant Dogs, which he spent about $10,000 on and used it as a calling card to get his first feature made. His first feature, of course, was Cabin Fever in 2003. So Cabin Fever was based on a real-life skin rash that he got while riding ponies on a farm in Iceland. Turns out it was ringworm, and he claims that when he was scratching his leg, entire pieces of skin were peeling off. He then went to shave his face, and it had affected his face too. And as he tried to shave, entire swaths of skin came off of his face. Eli claimed that he essentially shaved off half of his face before realizing this is a perfect concept for a horror movie. He then went on to write the script, but it took six years for him to raise the $1.5 million budget, which he raised through private investments. The movie went on to the festival circuit, and Tarantino saw it and claimed it was the best new American movie. It was eventually bought by Lionsgate at the Toronto Film Festival in what was the festival's biggest sale, and then went on to earn $35 million globally. Perhaps Eli Roth is best known for his breakout horror hit, Hostel. This is my favorite Eli Roth movie. There's something about it that I find to be just timeless and ruthless, but still a lot, a lot of fun. It mixes brutality with fun in equal measure, and it gets really dark and really brutal and really scary, and you almost don't think you can handle it, 
but somehow you can. Hostel was made for a budget of $4 million and opened number one at the box office opening weekend, eventually taking in $20 million in its first weekend and grossing $80 million worldwide at the box office. Eli turned down multiple studio directing jobs and took a directing salary of only $10,000 on Hostel to keep the budget as low as possible so there would be no limits set on the violence. In 2006, film critic David Edelstein in New York Magazine credited Eli Roth with creating the horror subgenre torture porn. So when you think about it, the early 2000s was a pretty watershed time for horror. The 90s were relatively tame compared to the 80s. Of course, in the 90s, you had Scream, and I know what you did last summer, but they paled in comparison to the buckets of gore that we saw with franchises like Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and even the Texas Chainsaw sequels that came out in the 80s. However, the early 2000s led to the splat pack This is a number of directors who were considered to contribute to a gleeful revival of gore being put back into movies, and Eli Roth was a big part of it. They include Eli Roth, Alexander Aja, Adam Green, Rob Zombie, and James Wan. There are a few others, but these were the main guys credited as being part of the Splat Pack. So to put this into chronological order, first came High Tension in 2003, which also kick-started French extremism. That was director Alexander Aja, and that movie is fantastic. I highly, highly recommend it. Next came Rob Zombie's Amazing House of a Thousand Corpses. I recently bought the Blu-ray, and I think I've bought this movie about five times now because I just cannot stop. In any case, Saw is what really kicked off torture porn in 2004 and essentially paved the way for Hostel, which came out in 2005. Hostel was then followed up by Hatchet from Adam Green in 2006. The Hatchet movies are a lot, a lot of fun. If you're a Friday the 13th fan, you definitely need to check these out. So I also figured I would give you Eli Roth essentials. These are what I consider to be Eli Roth's core four horror movies. First is Cabin Fever. As I mentioned before, it's fun. It's fantastic. It is really, really repulsive. It's great to see what he was able to do on a limited budget, and you get glimpses of his overall sensibility. Next, Hostel. Unmatched brutality and humor. Eli Roth's best movie, in my opinion. Next was Hostel 2, which I think was a very worthwhile follow-up. He claims that he lost audiences on this one because it was too brutal and it lacked the humor of the first one, but I kind of disagree. It might not be as funny, but it is a great movie, and the whole thing is worth the final kill at the end, which I still don't know how they got away with a uh, R rating for that. I'm not going to ruin the ending for you, but I do recommend you see it. Fourth would be Green Inferno from 2013. This movie is highly underrated, and I don't know why I don't hear more people talking about this. Socially, it's very much ahead of its time, and it explores what Eli Roth referred to as slacktivism, basically people who claim to get behind causes just for the vanity of it and actually don't understand the causes, nor do they actually do anything about it. They just tweet about it. Somehow this feels more relevant today than ever before. Green Inferno is fantastic. It's basically Eli Roth's version of Cannibal Holocaust, which I highly recommend if you haven't seen it. Apparently, you can get an animal cruelty-free version, and I highly recommend watching that version. If you're not sure what you're watching, if you see a turtle, a monkey, or a weird aardvark-looking thing, 
start to fast forward. It is just not worth it. But the movie itself is fantastic. So Green Inferno, I actually almost vomited watching this movie, which has never, ever happened before. I saw a screening of it and uh, I had to eye the exits. I had to figure out an escape plan. I didn't end up throwing up, but I had to plan for it, and uh, like I said, never ever happened before in a movie, so yeah. So that is my Eli Roth Essential Core 4. Again, that's Cabin Fever, Hostel, Hostel 2, and Green Inferno. All of this brings us to Thanksgiving, Eli Roth's latest movie, which just came out. So I'm hoping most of you listeners have seen Grindhouse from 2007. If you haven't, run don't walk. Grindhouse is a fantastic, fantastic experience. And one of the most insane movie-going experiences I've probably ever had. When you watch it now, it just feels like an impossible movie that could never, ever get made ever again. Nothing like it. It's about a $70 million epic where Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino each made a Grindhouse-style horror movie. And in between the movies are these fake trailers for movies that don't exist. So the first fake trailer was Machete, which actually spawned two movies. And then Rob Zombie did a trailer, Edgar Wright did a trailer, and Eli Roth did a trailer called Thanksgiving. And the trailer is so awesome and so brutal and just so completely and totally insane. And now Thanksgiving is a feature-length movie has finally come to theaters, and it is a lot of fun. It's very different from the trailer. It is not a 80s-style slasher. It's very much a modern reinterpretation of it, but it is a really fun theatrical experience. So when approaching the feature-length Thanksgiving Eli had to come up with a way to contextualize the new movie against the old movie. And what he basically did was he thought of the old movie in his imagination as a movie that came out in the 80s, but it was so brutal, so appalling, that it was pulled from theaters and all of the reels were destroyed, and the only thing that survived was that trailer. So this Thanksgiving movie is a remake of that Thanksgiving movie. Pretty interesting way to frame it. And uh, yeah, it explains why they are not all that alike. But regardless, the new Thanksgiving does not disappoint. So don't wait for streaming. Just get out to the theaters and see it. So I am very pleased, very humbled, very grateful to introduce today's guest, the legendary Eli Roth. Eli Roth, real pleasure. I remember seeing Grindhouse in college, and uh, here we are 15 years later. I'm wondering, what what was your cinema diet like when approaching Thanksgiving? Because I know the intention is to make, essentially, a remake of what that movie that we saw in the Grindhouse trailers was, but how much did you dip back into original Grindhouse material? The movie really wasn't about Grindhouse. This idea was an idea that started with my best friend, Jeff Rendell and I, when we were probably 12 years old. So we grew up in Massachusetts in the heyday of slashers, where every single holiday had a slasher movie. So we really wanted to make a film that would feel like My Bloody Valentine, Halloween, Silent Night, Deadly Night, April Fool's Day, even event movies around prom night or Happy Birthday to Me or Friday the 13th. That was always the intention was to make a real slasher film. And then seeing what happened in the 90s with some films like Scream and Mute Witness that I loved, um, Grindhouse was an opportunity to try out that idea that had been brewing. The intention was we went back to what we did in the original, which was always to make a movie that was much more like Scream or Mute Witness that was like a straight 
albeit slightly ridiculous at certain moments and fun, but to make a real kind of straight ahead who done it R-rated fun slasher movie. When it comes to all those movies that we grew up on, like the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Streets and Pieces and Texas Chainsaw, there's a feeling that I would get, and I feel like a lot of us would get as kids, where we're watching something and it's dangerous and it might be more than we can handle. And I feel like going into adulthood as horror fans, we're constantly chasing that feeling. And clearly you have a very high tolerance, but I'm wondering how do you try to bring that feeling back into your modern movies that feeling that us horror fans chase where there's that sense of danger you know without dipping into nihilism without dipping into a henry portrait of a serial killer or serbian film there's that fine line i've always found you've been able to strike between this feels dangerous this feels like more than i can handle but it doesn't dip in nihilism could you tell us about that balance and how you approach that with thanksgiving Sure. I mean, I want the movie. It look depends what you're doing. There, I love those Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and there, there are certain movies that are just tough to watch, like Last House on the Left. Yeah, they're more of an endurance test. They're not necessarily enjoyable films. There are things you can admire about them, but the experience is oof, that was rough. I didn't want that. I think part of the fun of slashers is you're guessing who the killer is, and people you like get killed, and mm-hmm. people get killed out of the wrong order. So. I think that you want your audience to feel that they're in the hands of an unstable narrator. Yeah. But you don't want the audience to feel betrayed. And there are certain ways that you can betray them. One is by having your characters make really stupid decisions that don't make any sense. They can be an idiot in the context of being a teenager and doing something dumb and impulsive. That's fun. But when they do something that any logical person would say, like, why would you put down the weapon and walk in the house? That kind of thing. You lose your audience. Yeah. Also, you can lose your audience by going too dark in a scene to the point where it crosses over into, as you said, nihilism and cruelty. You want to punish the characters and have brutal deaths, but you don't want it to be such a punishing experience that the audience starts to feel like, why am I sitting here? I don't feel good about this. I thought I was here to have a fun time in a movie, and this is like more cruel than I expected. And that's the kind of thing that happens in editing mm-hmm. where you're, you cut the movie, you show it to an audience and the audience tells you. And when they're sitting on the edge of their seat and they're cheering and screaming and applauding, they're engaged. If you have a kill scene and they're dead silent and there's no reaction, then maybe you've gone too far and not in a good way. Think of it like you, the Thanksgiving meal, you wait all day for it, you starve yourself for it. And then you have turkey and stuffing and you pie and everything. Then you're like, I want another helping. You're like, okay, <laughs> let me get seconds. Then you're like, we just have one more slice of pie. And then you feel like you have a rock in your stomach and you can't even look at food and you feel sick and you just want to get out of there. So that's not what you want. You don't want people overstuffed. Right. To use another turkey metaphor, you want people still hungry going, what happens next? I can't wait to see what happens next. I'm still hungry for more. Got it. So as a horror historian yourself with History of Horror on Shudder and having worked in the industry for over 20 years and just being an overall film scholar, I've heard you talk extensively about how new horror entries need to contextualize every other horror movie that came before it, not just in terms of outdoing kills, but having a level of relevance. So I was curious about how you approached where this movie fits into the overall horror pantheon in the context of where horror is now and just horror history in general. 
there hasn't been a new slasher in a long time. And there are slasher movies, but it's the ninth Halloween. It's the sixth Scream. Like, they're doing very well and people like them. And obviously, we love those characters. But there has to be something else in order for the genre to survive. And I think there's a lot of supernatural horror that's coming out. It's doing very well. But there isn't that straight up killer in a mask and you're trying to guess who it is film right there hasn't been any new horror character like that so that was the idea was to create a new one and we'll see how audiences respond i feel like people want something new a new horror world slasher mythology yeah so i've heard you also talk about how you channel your actual fears into every movie that you make cabin fever was about a rare skin disease you contracted while riding ponies Green Inferno was about slacktivism, and oddly enough, it's, it feels more relevant today than in any yeah. time. Yeah, it's ahead of its time. Oh, yeah. How do you get in touch with what scares you without having an existential panic? And then how do you channel that into your movies in a healthy way? I think you got to do what scares you. Everyone has their fears. The, the idea that we can't confront our fears without going into a panic is a childish one. I think that you need to look at whatever scares you and understand why. And to me, it's just finding the theme. It's not even what scares you. It's what do you find interesting? And already, it's not even Thanksgiving. My phone is exploding with text messages about Black Friday sales. It's this Christmas shopping that has completely infected everything. And it has to happen because there's no middle class anymore because all the overlords that own all these companies are paying everyone such little money that people need the Black Friday sale to get all the toys their kids wanted for Christmas. So it's this crazy cycle of these gladiator games to get these products so that people don't feel left behind and the kids don't feel left out and you don't feel like an inferior parent for not buying them. There's something very perverse in that. And that's where I, I think there's fertile ground. That's what I think is interesting. This idea of being thankful and then going and trampling each other for electronics at a Black Friday sale that it all goes out the window as soon as the gates go up and people participate in these gladiator games for products. So I think that's something that's really interesting in setting it in Plymouth with the birthplace of Thanksgiving and watching the panic and being caught in a trampling and watching mob mentality and seeing being stuck in a riot. All of these things are things that scare me, but also that theme was in particularly very interesting to me. So a, uh, a friend and sponsor of the show is Blood and Banter. It's a uh, conversational card game. And one of the questions, name a horror movie villain you would invite to Thanksgiving dinner and why? Would love to pose that question to you with the stipulation that it can't be John Carver from your new slasher. So what's, which uh, horror movie villain would you invite to Thanksgiving dinner and why? I don't know. Obviously, I've just spent a lot of time at dinner with John Carver, and I had a great time with him. So I think it's an unfair question to say that I couldn't invite him. Okay, so I guess it's him then. So in terms of the original inspiration for the movie, if people want to get forensic about getting themselves into the mood for the new movie, what are some classics that inspire the original trailer that people should brush up on between now and the release of the movie? There's two different things. It, for people to get inspired for what watched the original trailer, watch the original trailer. That's its own thing. If you want to watch the movie that we made that's coming out, then I would definitely, if you want to get in this slasher mood, films like Sleepaway Camp, The Prowler, 
Even Fulci's house by the cemetery is a fall Massachusetts look. But I would definitely watch Mute Witness, which I think is a really fantastic overlooked slasher film from the 90s. It's not a whodunit slasher, but there's some really fantastic cat and mouse, especially the first 45 minutes or hour of that movie. I think it's spectacular. Okay, great. So obviously today, a lot of horror audiences have been essentially desensitized by a lot of gore with stuff like Terrifier 2, as well as jump scares. It's hard to scare audiences nowadays because they're, they're basically battle-tested and ready. What is your approach to creating effective scares? How much of it is science? How much of it is actual instinct? How do you approach crafting scares? You shoot all the pieces and you can find it in the editing. You, you can't do the same type of scare over and over. The audience sees it coming. Yeah. You've got to lead them one way, thinking you're going to give them a certain thing, and then something comes totally out of left field. That's when the scare works the best. It's when you're completely off rhythm. So that's the key, is not falling into the rhythm. Because it's easy in the abstract to think of all the different kills and approach it the way you would approach it, but then you have to line them up against each other and go, we already just did that. So... Now I want to do this kind of scare, but I'm going to let the audience think I'm going in this direction. So it's largely a matter of misleading. It's misdirect. Misdirect is always the key to a good scare. Got it. And how close are you in terms of crafting that, those feelings and that tension with your editor? I had two fantastic women I worked with, Michelle Conroy and Michelle Aller. And when I'm cutting it, I, I know what I want to shoot and I'll send it to them and have them do a rough version of it. And then they can tell me if they think I'm missing a piece or a goal. Maybe we can send splinter unit with a camera at some point later in the shoot, we'll pick it up. Like they're cutting it saying, oh, you missed this piece or I would get this shot. And then sometimes as I'm shooting, I'll like just send an iPhone video of the shot and then go, is there a piece I'm missing? And they can go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get one from behind John Carver over his shoulder, panning around the room. Okay, yeah, we were going to do that. I wasn't sure. Like that, they're like, okay, that's perfect. So I'm constantly in communication with my editors while I'm shooting, especially on a budget like this, which is a really tight shoot. We shot it in 35 days. So we were moving fast. Yeah. So I know we're wrapping up, but one thing I want to emphasize is your insistence on utilizing practical effects as much as possible. I've been a big proponent for a long time. Could you discuss the importance of practical? Certain things you can, you just can't do and you have to do CGI. You might have an idea that the physics of it literally don't work or you need CGI to remove certain things. It's really more removal or taking out a wire or you can see a bounce card or there's a light or you just need a crew member physically standing there with a tube of blood. So, but then you can paint it out and, and mask it in the ground, just cover over it with dirt, th those kinds of things. Yeah. But there is nothing quite like, when I see these movies, I want to see the gore, I want to see the blood, I want to see the gods. And we had Adrian Moreau and his wife, Kathy T and um, a Toronto artist named Steve Newburn helping out as well as it was amazing group. But to me, when I'm watching someone get splattered with blood digitally, I don't feel it. When you take a, a hose full of blood and you spray it on and after, we know what that feels like. You yeah. know that they're wet. You know that it somehow gets into your bones. I feel, I feel cheated if I see something with a bunch of CGI blood. I yeah. feel like, what the fuck was that? I wanted to see people getting sprayed in blood. Did they? I, and I get it. It's a pain in the ass. It's a mess. It takes hours to clean up and sometimes it doesn't go right. But when you get it, there's nothing like it. Yeah. 
Those are perfect words to end on. I really appreciate it, Eli. Huge congratulations. And yeah, couldn't be more psyched about Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. Really nice meeting you. You too. Take care. Talk to you soon. Thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. We scare because we care. Hey guys, one last thing before you head off and this is The Howl. How would you like a monthly newsletter featuring a recap of the latest horror news, my personal movie recommendations, updates from the show, and cool stuff I've recently discovered? If this sounds like something you'd enjoy, sign up for my monthly email newsletter, The Howl, today. You can sign up for The Howl by visiting nicktaylor.com slash thehowl. That's nicktaylor.com slash thehowl. Howl.